The main Bible reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 23. So Colossians 1, starting at verse 1, says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation of the heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is easy to think that when we say that we all believe in Jesus, that we all believe in the same Jesus. Our proneness to idolatry means that we have a tendency to misrepresent Jesus, to make up our own version. Of course, the Jesus that we make up is not real, and therefore the relationship is not real. We are committed, therefore, to being explicit about the Jesus we believe in and bring it under the scrutiny of what God himself says about him. But what are we to make of the Jesus that we make up? How does he compare to the real Jesus? One of the things to observe is the sheer inadequacy of the Jesus we make up.
Let me give you an example. It's taken from the Bethel Sozo ministry, a ministry that's been influential among Christians in recent years. Let me read you a bit from their training manual. It's a bit where the author is explaining how our relationship with family members can affect whether we connect or don't connect to the Godhead. The Bible says that Jesus is our companion and best friend. So the reaction to our siblings and or friends, or how they react to us, can transfer to how we believe Jesus reacts to us. An older sibling who is forced to babysit or parent the younger sibling may believe that Jesus will force them to do things. We end up believing that we will have to do some type of ministry that we do not want to do, or that he will give us a destiny and or ministry that we are incapable of doing. When a younger sibling may think that the older sibling will control him or her, they can interpret that Jesus, interpret that Jesus will want to control them. He is not for our best, but is out to make things better for himself and others. Friends can be an area where people feel devalued, because they are the ones who are supposed to understand and include us. If this didn't happen, then people may also believe that Jesus really does not want to include them. He just had to save them because that was what he was supposed to do. He really is not interested in them, except for the fact that he is their saviour. What is being presented here is this. Jesus is presented to us as our companion and best friend. This comes with certain baggage from our human experience of friends, which transfers to our relationship with Jesus. That baggage needs to be dealt with if we're to have a true view of how Jesus relates to us. Notice how this view of Jesus has certain limits. While Jesus presents himself to us as our companion and best friend, that is as far as he can go. He's now limited by our experience of what it means to be a friend. And until we sort out our own baggage, he's prevented from being the friend that he really is. What we've ended up with is a certain dependence of Jesus on us. It's interesting that Jesus is put in terms of our companion and best friend. For whilst Jesus calls his disciples his friends, John 15 verse 14 for example, Jesus doesn't say that he is their friend. He says they are his friends, but he doesn't say that he is their friend. In fact, neither God nor Jesus is ever referred to in the Bible as a friend of anyone. So though Abraham and Moses are called friends of God, God is never called their friend. Jesus can refer to Lazarus as his friend, but Jesus is not called the friend of Lazarus. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that either God or Jesus is an unfriend. If one measures friendship strictly on the basis of who loves most, guilty sinners can find no better and truer friend than in God the Father and in his Son whom he sent. But mutual, reciprocal friendship of the modern variety is not in view and cannot be without demeaning God. We begin a new series today in the book of Colossians. It's a letter written by Paul to the New Testament church in Colossae. It's not somewhere Paul has been, but he's heard all about them from Epaphras. And Paul begins his letter by telling them how he's been praying for them. Having heard all about them, 
hasn't only resulted in Paul praying for them to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to telling them that he's been doing so and what his prayer has been. But why did Paul tell them he prayed for them in this way? Well, the prayer report itself is in two parts. Verses 3 to 8 concern Paul's thanking God for the Christians at Colossae, for their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. It is the hope of the gospel that is the basis for this faith and love. Intercession isn't the only type of prayer. These are prayers of thanksgiving. Verses 9 to 14 are prayers of intercession. They concern Paul's asking God on behalf of them that God will fill the believers with the knowledge of his will in order that they will live a life that pleases him. Such a life is described in terms of four characteristics. One, bearing fruit in every good work. Two, growing in the knowledge of God. Three, being strengthened so as to display great endurance and patience. And four, joyfully giving thanks to God the Father. Let me make a couple of observations. Notice the language that Paul used to describe the spread of the gospel in verse 6. We pick it up from halfway through verse 5. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What is the language of bearing fruit and growing reminiscent of? This language is reminiscent of God's creation purpose of humanity in Genesis 1. That is to say that Paul sees in what is heard about in the Colossi church as nothing less than the fulfilment of God's creation purpose for humanity. God is fulfilling his promise to make a people for himself. This explains the scope of the influence of the gospel being in the whole world. The second observation is how the language bearing fruit is picked up again in verse 10. Let's pick it up from verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The gospel is already bearing fruit and increasing amongst them, yet the prayer is more and more. The Colossians must continue on the course that they have already begun. Why did Paul tell them he prayed for them? Paul is demonstrating genuine love and concern for them, and that will only incline them to listen all the more. To what he has to say. But I take it that Paul's prayers are instructive. They reveal his priorities, priorities that we can share because at the end of the day they're God's priorities. In sharing Paul's concerns we share God's concerns. Paul's concern that his readers joyfully give thanks for the Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, 
leads him on to an extended majestic exposition in verses 15 to 20 of who this son is. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That the Son is the image of the invisible God invokes the description of humanity in Genesis 1. Jesus is the image of God in that he perfectly displays what a human should be. It's the category of the second Adam. But this doesn't adequately explain the phrase because of what Paul goes on to say regarding the Son's relationship to creation. That is to say that Christ is the image of God can cover two things. He's the image of God and his humanity and he's the image of God and his divinity. But what are we to make of the idea of him being the firstborn of all creation, verse 15? It can't mean that he's the first creature made, for this is ruled out by virtue of verse 16, that by him all things were created. To understand the meaning of this phrase, we need to consider the idea of the firstborn in the Old Testament. The commentator, commentator O'Brien writes, the term firstborn was frequently used mostly in genealogies and historical narratives to indicate temporal priority and sovereignty of rank. What he has observed is that the term firstborn doesn't simply refer to the idea of who was born first, but the significance of being born first, that you are prior to everything else and therefore supreme over it. Here, with reference to Christ, it means that he is preeminent over creation. He is prior, pre-existent to it, and therefore Lord over it. Paul uses the term firstborn again in verse 18, but his use of firstborn here is a little different. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When it is said of Christ that he is the beginning, it does not mean he is the beginning of God's creation. It means that as the one who is the firstborn from the dead, he is the founder of a new humanity. Christ's resurrection signals the beginning of the restoration of the creation order. The resurrection is about Jesus becoming the head of the new creation. And because Christ is the beginning and the firstborn in resurrection, as well as in creation, he has therefore become preeminent in all things, in both new creation and old. The first place belongs to him alone. He is preeminent in everything, creation and redemption. We can take this one step further, for Paul goes on in verse 20 to speak of Christ reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Reconciliation presupposes rupture. For things to be brought back into right relationship presupposes that things were out of right relationship. Paul doesn't fill in the gap here, but it's the idea that the created order becomes disordered at the fall and then realigned in redemption. It makes the link between creation and redemption. Redemption isn't a small part of our hope. It is the recreation of all things. It is cosmic in scale and Jesus 
is preeminent in it. One of the inadequacies of the Jesus we make up is that he is too small. In Bethel Sozo, Jesus is framed only in terms of companion and brother, not as creator and redeemer. It's in verse 23 that we have an if. Paul warns the Colossian believers that only if they persevere in the faith will they be presented holy and blameless before God. For some of us, such an if expresses doubt. It is though Paul is saying, if you continue in the faith, but doesn't seem like you will. Or we might think that Paul is expressing confidence. If you continue in the faith, and I know that you will. Which is it? Does he doubt they will persevere and be saved? If, though, I have my doubts. Or is he confident that they, in fact, will persevere and be saved? If, as I am certain. Paul is using here a conditional statement. He is asserting that if they persevere, if that is the reality, then they will be saved. The conditional statement itself doesn't comment on whether they will persevere or not. So far in the letter, Paul has spoken very highly of them, and so we have good reason to say that Paul thinks they will persevere. Verse 23 comes as a challenge to the readers to consider the condition. Paul is affirming the need for believers to persevere in their faith in order to have hope on the final day. Paul is confronting the Colossians with the reality that their eventual salvation depends on their remaining faithful to Christ and to the true gospel. We began by considering how the Jesus we make up is inadequate. In contrast, we've considered the preeminence of the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Paul exhorts us to continue to put our confidence in this Jesus for our salvation. The way to continue is not simply to stand still, but to get to know him better, that we might live lives worthy of him.